is where business ideas and passions turn into profit. Napkin ideas are no longer tucked away in drawers, and women around the globe are turning their hobbies into million-dollar businesses. Welcome to Million Dollar Hobbies. Here's your host, world-renowned jewelry designer and Shop HQ celebrity, Victoria Wick. Welcome to another episode of the Million Dollar Hobbies. I have to tell you, today we have an amazing, amazing guest. I'm just floored with the information that he has and the book that he has written. His name is Steve Anderson. He's written a book, believe it or not, it's called The Bezos Letters as Jeff Bezos, you know, the guy who kind of runs our world right now. And in this book, he deconstructs the 21 letters that Jeff Bezos sent to the Amazon shareholders over time. And Steve, otherwise, he's just an amazing, insightful person with a lot of you know different sort of industry backgrounds that led up to this, that culminated in this book. The book, by the way, was the bestseller on Amazon, Wall Street Journal for sure, USA Today and Amazon. And it's an international bestseller. And he's got, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of followers he has on uh, LinkedIn. But without further ado, I want to welcome Steve Anderson. Welcome. Victoria, thank you. It's so great to be here with you. Yeah. So that's just amazing. So I'm sure I've got everybody's uh, curiosity really piqued. So first of all, why did you deconstruct the 20 letters that he wrote to Amazon shareholders? Wait, were you one of the shareholders? Uh, No, I'm not, actually. I haven't been, and now it's a bit expensive and whatever. So, but it's one of those things I regret. I'll say it that way, right? But we all not doing this 20 years ago. So, but, you know, I came up with the idea really through my work in the insurance industry where I've, I've spent my entire career. You know, the last 25 years I've spent helping insurance agents and brokers really understand and implement technology in their organizations. And What I came to the realization of was that the biggest risk businesses face today is actually not taking enough risk. And that's very counterintuitive, certainly for the insurance industry, right? Because we're all about reducing risk and mitigating it and all those kinds of things. But I started researching companies that had done it well, meaning embrace technology and implement it, and those that hadn't. And those that hadn't are sort of well-known, I guess now, Kodak and BlackBerry and Blockbuster and, you know, <laughs> others, Sears, yeah. Yeah. right? Montgomery Ward, you forgot that. Montgomery Ward, yep. I mean, there's a whole list of them out there. And I also was researching, okay, who's done it well? Well, came across Amazon. Obvi- I-, I say obviously now, but at the time it was like, oh, Amazon's done really well. I wonder how. And that really was the question I started asking. And I came across the letters to shareholders that Jeff Bezos started writing in 1997 when they went public. And I was astounded at the amount of information he gave and talked about what his thinking is and how they operate at Amazon. And that really started giving me some clues to why Amazon was and is and continues to be as successful as they are. And that resulted in the 14 principles and the four cycles and right all of the growth principles that I believe Bezos has used to get to where he is today. So, you know, before we went on, I did share with you, I read the book, The Everything Store. Mm-hmm. I found the book kind of fascinating. 
And when you read it, it does, because it actually goes through his early years to yes. be moderately successful. When you read it, you do get the sense of how he does the, the four different phases of, you know, pretty much building any business, meaning that right. he started out as a bookstore, then he boy store in all the different stores. Do you think that when you say taking enough risks, do you think that when you look at companies like uh, Blockbusters and there's all these other companies that have gone, you know, they're not with us anymore. Do you think that it's necessarily how much risk they took or they, did, they just forgot to evolve or reinvest? Well, and I'm going to put it in Bezos speak. <laughs> so what he would say is that those companies became day two companies. So one of his mantras is it's always day one. It's still day one. Right. And, and that idea is that you know Amazon, Bezos, still thinks of Amazon as a startup. Right. You know, and that's kind of crazy to think about, right? Given how big they are. But I think for your listeners, it's also important to understand Bezos started like every one of you listening. Yeah. Meaning on his hands and knees, putting books and packages and taking them to the post office so they could be mailed out to customers. And I think one of the phrases I use in the book is that one of the biggest risks of success is actual success because you tend to start protecting what got you there, not looking at what's next. And certainly, you know, blockbusters, I think a great example of that, not being able to adjust their business model or really kill it when they started understanding that streaming was going to be something, you know? And so success gets business owners in a, a mindset of I got to protect what got me here, not look at what's next. Yeah. I think that's a lot of truth to that. I think that recently I came across this, a quote by uh, Winston Churchill, and you might've come across that too, because you seem like you're a pretty well-read guy. (laughs) It said something like success is not final and failure is not fatal. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that and you go, what an interesting quote, but then, you know, I wonder if, the success actually is the cause of the failure because success is not final, meaning that, you know what I mean? Because, you know, that's- Yeah, and failure can be the cause of success, Exactly. right? And that's actually my first principle is called encourage successful failure because Bezos has instilled in Amazon this idea that experimentation is key to invention. And if you're going to do an experiment, you don't know if it's going to work. Because if you did, it's not an experiment. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, the whole nature of it is we don't know what to do next. Let's try this. And Amazon has been built on that mindset of experimenting. And I also want to say it's not doing stupid stuff. It's calculated. It's calculated. It's you protect the downside. You don't do stupid stuff. In fact, Amazon is has an intolerance for incompetence. So if it's failure because of incompetence, you're probably gone. If it's failure because you're trying to test something new, then you're probably encouraged to keep going, even in the midst of failure. So when you say that you're protecting, you know, your downside and you're protecting what's actually working, would you say that they're looking at the 80-20 rule where the 20% that's actually bringing you the 80%, they're going to always protect that, but they're going to have to look for the new 20% 
Yes. I think that's a great way to look at it. Yep. For my listeners, would you kind of explain that a little bit more in granular detail? Because I think that that's a really important lesson that going back to what you said earlier about how Jeff Bezos started his company, very much like everybody listening, I would go even further than that. You look at companies like Google, Facebook, you know, Amazon, Apple, all started their companies with like $5,000 capital. I mean, doing everything themselves, right? So this is a very relevant question in regard to the protecting, you know, taking experimental risks, because when we're talking about taking more risks, we're not telling you to go and Steven's not telling you to go and just just take more risk for the t- sake of taking it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. To try and answer that question, let me give you an idea of one of the, what I think is one of the pivotal tools that Bezos instilled at Amazon that has led, I think, to its continued growth. And that's called the six-page narrative. So in 2004, so again, they were fairly, you know, quote, old at that point. In 2004, Bezos banned PowerPoint at Amazon or keynote. Any slide-oriented presentation was no longer acceptable to pitch an idea to a new product, a new something. What you were required to do, and it developed over a few years, but you were required to actually write out an essay. It's called a six-page narrative. It starts with a press release called a future press release on the day the product you're pitching is released to the public. It follows a FAQ. So here's the point. It requires so much thinking to actually write out your ideas and anticipate, here are the problems, here are the questions, here's what we don't know how to do that we'll have to learn, that that's protecting just crazy ideas, right? Because you've got to think it through. And Bezos absolutely believes writing things out. And, and I think that even if you look back at the shareholder letters, yeah. that's the core of what he did. He wrote out for shareholders and everybody else his thought process. And I think that's why they're so valuable. Yeah. I think that's really important. So when it comes to basically mastering the risk, what you're saying then is, again, so that we know we're all kind of on the same wavelength, that we're, you really have to understand, I guess what you're saying of this whole thing is just have a pulse on your business, pulse on your customers so that you, you understand where your business is, where your stomach is as far as how much risk you can take mm-hmm. and where your customers are going. Because customers, one thing, I mean, whether you're evolving or not, the customers are always evolving and Correct. your customers are evolving. Correct. So you definitely have to have a pulse. You really have to take an accurate you know, thing. And also, I think I like the idea of writing out sort of your business plan or anything that you knew that you're getting into, <clears throat> because just the act of being able to write it out actually will get you thinking about all the little details, execution details, correct, um, and all the what if or you know when you write things out, you're like, gee, this sounds really stupid. I think yeah, that's right. And that kind of going back to protecting the downside is, if it doesn't make sense on paper, you know, when you write it out, yeah. it probably won't make sense as you implement it. And it's really the whole idea of slowing down to speed up. And actually, a quote from Andy Jassy, who's the former CEO of Amazon Web Services, now becoming and replacing Jeff Bezos as CEO of Amazon. What he said is, too often, engineers go into a project 
and they work and work and work and they get to the end and they end up with something that doesn't work. Right. Whereas if they had taken the time beforehand to really think through all of the issues and problems, et cetera, they save more time than they waste having to write out those ideas. Okay. So now from the business point of view, you know, like from the business planning, getting stockholders to listen to you, all of that. So we've covered all this now, you and I. When it comes to what Amazon actually did, when it, it, in my mind, in terms of their competitive advantage, I mean, there are so many different advantages and he's built all kinds of barriers to entry and all that, but which, you know, it's definitely outside of the scope of today. But what I do want to uh, mention is that the one thing from the business I come from is how he really revolutionized customer service. Yes. That customer service was just, I mean, there needs to be another word for customer service now that he set a whole new standard because the customer service that most of us experienced before Amazon wasn't really customer service. It was really an afterthought. If they gave it to you, it's fine. But it wasn't a, there has been nobody who's actually built a company around that. Yes. And so that, again, a key principle, it's my uh, principle number four, and it's called obsess over customers. Right. And that's what Amazon, and actually obsess is Bezos words. He writes again in that very first 1997 letter is that we will obsess over customers. And you've just, Victoria, explained what the implications of that mindset have been, which is an extraordinary development of all kinds of things that are focused on the customer. You know, and you said, we talk about customer experience and customer journey and customer focus, and but obsess over customers has a different connotation to the point where Amazon has created automated customer service, meaning they monitor people's interaction. And if it's not up to a standard that they have set, they might automatically refund money without the customer even knowing something was wrong. You know, that happened to me twice, actually. Yeah. That happened to me twice. I bought a pair of, it's kind of like a athletic leisure yoga pants. Uh I wore, I wanted to have them for my business trip and I was leaving. And, you know, Amazon Prime, you know, delivers it in two days. So I ordered it like three days ahead, of course. And I didn't receive it on day two and I track it and it says it was delivered. So I, you know, and I live in an area where there's, there's no theft. So I emailed them and told them I haven't received it, but the, you know, the little thing says it, I had it, but you know, now I don't know if I'm ever going to get it or not because I'm leaving for a trip for 14 days. So by the time this person got back to me, they had already credited my account. And lo and behold, by the time the person got on the phone with me, I'm looking at a package in front of my door. Yes. So I told them, well, I'm just going to let you know that, you know, I, you know, she's like, we can either send you another whatever. And I said, no, I, I'm looking at this thing. It's at my door. And basically, I mean, they anticipate pretty much, you know, they have great anticipation. So I guess the other thing I would say about Amazon, their business model too, is that, so I'm thinking, you know, there's so many things he did that's revolutionary. The customer services. I mean, let me tell you, I have dealt with department stores, specialty stores, duty-free, in-flight duty-free. I've dealt with, you know, people, companies. We're talking like um, Harrods, all these companies all over the world. And the 
discussions about customer service and how obsessed they are about customer service and you know and all the things they do for their customers i mean i've been in companies large companies in america where senior management will say these things but they they just really even they didn't care for their customers. They didn't even like the customers they have. So they come up with a new campaign to get a whole new customer, you know, right. new group of customers. Or sometimes they think it's one or the other. So they, you know, one group or the other. So Bezos obviously elevated that to, you know, just blew it off the chart. <laughs> but the second thing I would say that he did that was revolutionary in my mind is that I would say he was probably the first person who has built a company, a part of the company, a part of his success came from collaborations. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, you know what I mean? Like he let yes. all third party people to come in and do all that stuff. Yep. It was a brilliant business model because he was able to actually get reach from everybody, right? Because they got there. Right. So, I mean, I'm also going to get to the part of the Amazon that I really don't like in a minute. But what do you think about, like, was that a part of that? Because I haven't read the 21 letters and I have not read your book yet, which I'm going to. In fact, if you're listening right now, I would highly suggest that you read Steve's book is called The Bezos Letters, and where he deconstructs 21 letters that Jeff Bezos wrote to Amazon shareholders. And I think it's very valuable because I don't know that he would write the same letters today with the same transparency and the same eagerness, you know, to his shareholders, because right now he doesn't have to. And, you know, it's a very different company now. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really relevant. And as far as I know, as successful as Jeff Bezos has been, there really hasn't been a lot of books written about him or you know their strategies. I mean, there have been portions of it. Right. But, so if you are a small business person, you know, I would highly recommend that you read that because he did a lot of things, you know. I mean, the poor man struggled like the first 10, 15 years. Yes. I'm telling you that he struggled. Absolutely. He just downright dog fight, you know, every quarter for decades. So getting back to, you know, my question about the the idea of collaboration was that part of you know his uh, goal. Yes. Well, and and I again I would say, for him, it was obsessing over customers, right? Because a couple things they have you know early two thousands, two day shipping for Prime, right? His senior leadership team thought he was crazy. Mm-hmm. They fought him tooth and nail to not pay for two day sh- free two day shipping. But what he said was. If it's better for customers, it will be better for Amazon and our shareholders. And so I think now we look back going, oh, of course, right? Because what did two day free two-day shipping do? It removed a barrier. It removed right. a friction point, right? Do you remember the days? Oh, I remember. When we would go online and you get yeah. all the way through the shopping cart and all of a sudden there was a $20 shipping fee right. and we stopped. Abandoned carts. All right. So that's one example. And I'll get to your question on the next one. Amazon Marketplace. That is allowing third-party sellers to sell their products on Amazon's most valuable real estate, their website. Now, back to successful failure. That was the third iteration of them experimenting with what would work. The first was called Amazon Auctions. They were trying to compete with eBay. The second was called Z Shops, which was third-party sellers, but in a whole different section of the website, bad customer experience. The third was third-party seller, Amazon product, literally next to each other on the same page. And what Bezos said was, again, senior leadership team thought he was crazy. But what he said was, 
if somebody else can have the inventory or and or at a better price, it's better for customers. Therefore, it will ultimately be better for Amazon. And of course, they created a whole business around fulfillment services, right? For third-party sellers who could never afford to do what Bezos did for those first 10 or 15 years, which is built this amazing logistics infrastructure to get packages to someone's porch. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really glad that, I mean, obviously, no Bezos and neither are you, but yes, <laughs> very, there's only one of him out there. You can play, you know, pick a lot of different things about, you know, his business model. And, and, you know, we are now seeing some cracks of his success as well. And I'm sure he'll deal with that. But I think that for me, you know, being, I'm a very customer service centric person and I'm seeing it from, so I work with a lot of corporations who compete with Amazon and I've seen, you know, their reaction, like Amazon doesn't exist or, you know, they don't do our category really well, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh, give it time. They will find out, right. <laughs> you know, and they have, right. So I think that having that incredible customer mindset, you know, customer-centric mindset. And when I say that, it's not like you're giving them lip service. I mean, I've been in companies and I'm not going to mention names, but I've been in companies where they actually had names for customers. Like we're going to call, you know, our customer, Megan, and, you know, we're going to call the 50-year-old customers, you know, Elena and all these things. And they got their lifestyles, demographics, but they were completely missing the point. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The name, demographics, this gender, all that, her income group isn't going to solve the problem. You have to understand the mindset of the person and the and preferences on how, how they actually want to shop and you know want to be delivered and all that. I mean, I also love how Amazon has the anticipated shipping so that you know if I'm going away for four days, you can actually choose, you know, your ship date. Ship date, right. So and I, you know, they just do make it so easy that you just really feel like you're an idiot if you go somewhere else, or something, you know? <laughs> well, I, yeah, you know, even my wife and I, I mean, several times, certainly over this last year, which obviously for everybody's been unique, different, but, you know, it was, well, I can go to the store and buy that. And my wife would say, oh, I was just easier to let Amazon ship, you know, bring it to right. the door, yeah. right? Because yeah. they have built that up and they can fulfill that promise. right. 99.99% um, yeah. of the time, sure. right? Now, let me ask you. So I'm going to ask you one question before we go to, to the 21 letters. You say here there are four key growth cycles that every successful business company is always intentionally moving through. What are the four key growth cycles? So test, cycle okay. one, build. Once you figure out what's going to work, you build it. You accelerate the growth once you see it's working right, and then you scale. Okay. Right. So even you can look at Amazon, right? Early days testing, building, accelerating scale. And scale for me, you know, one of my questions was when I wrote the book was how in the world do they have the number of employees they have? Well, in 2020, they added over 450,000 employees to that company. How in the world can you do that and still maintain culture and all those kinds of things? But those are the four cycles. And then the 14 principles are grouped into each of those cycles that seem appropriate for that stage. So did you cover, or maybe you want to recap, in the 21 letters that he wrote to the shareholders, what do you think for a small business pers- you know, person, the top three main takeaways? We already discovered the customer service part. Yep. And you know, any other relevant things that you haven't mentioned? 
Well, you know, I go back to a couple of things we talked about. Certainly encourage successful failure. That tends to be something that resonates with people. And by the way, Amazon and Bezos have had some spectacular failures, oh, which sure. you don't tend to remember because they've had some great successes too. I think one but, is- But let's go over the failures, just a couple, because people- Okay. So, well, I already mentioned early on. So Amazon auctions and, and Z shops, right? That's just an example. Probably their biggest failure is the Amazon Fire Phone. Oh yeah. I remember that. Most people don't. <laughs> Yeah. It was released in 2014, yeah. Jeff Bezos up on stage th- saying this is the next great thing. Yeah. Well, 2014, iPhone has been out for seven years. Mm-hmm. Android phones were already out. Who needed another phone? Yeah. Well, nobody, right? Yeah. And so literally, and that was Bezos' pet project. I mean, he pushed that. He yeah. thought it was a great idea. Shows you as smart as he is, he even makes bad decisions sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure. At the end of the 2014, they wrote off $178 million in development and inventory costs. Literally, the price of the phone, they dropped to 99 cents and they couldn't give it away. <laughs> That's a pretty spectacular failure. That's a, it's, it, it is. Mm-hmm. But here's, again, it kind of tying this. The success out of that is that same group that created the Fire Phone was also working on another project. That project turned out to be the Amazon Echo and then Alexa. Alexa, yeah. Right? So all that voice processing work that they learned about creating a phone, they were able to apply into the Echo hardware. And I think we can agree that combination of Echo and Alexa has been pretty successful. Now, what are the things that you think that Amazon has room to improve? What are the things that they can't do as well as other people? Because I've got my ideas on that. Yeah, I think there's several. And we certainly you know, have over the probably, and you, you kind of hinted at this a little bit earlier. We've certainly over the last probably couple, two or three years, you know, had a bit more of some questions, right, about their size. Mm-hmm. Can they be too big? About the third-party marketplace, are they using data from third-party sellers to create their own private label products, employees, right? And really it's focused on fulfillment center workers, Mm -hmm. warehouse workers, you know, could they treat them better? Those are at least three areas that I think they are, and I think they're working on them. So the last letter, the 2020 letter. So my book stops at the 2018 letter. Mm-hmm. There's now been 2019 and 2020. We're actually starting to think about writing a second edition to kind of wrap up those last two letters into it. But one of the things in the 2020 letter that Bezos said was that we need to rethink or improve our I can't think of the right word. I want to say relationship with employees. So here's a downside of customer obsession, potentially, which is why do warehouse workers have a hard time? Because they're always pushing to get it out faster. Faster, yeah. Right? And that's because three customer pillars at Amazon, wide selection, low prices, fast delivery. Everything they do is in their customer focuses and those three pillars. Well, that means employees have to get things picked off the shelves, packaged out 
to the trucks, et cetera, so they can be delivered. And they have already have made steps in helping or working on improving those work conditions. But, you know, it's a tough job. I've been in two different fulfillment centers. It's fast paced. It's hard work. It's a tough job. And they were the very first company to increase their minimum wage to $15 an hour in 2018. So again, you look at these factors, they all work together. And one of the things that I've noticed at Amazon with Bezos, and I assume it will continue, is that if you show him them, you can do it better Once they become convinced they need to, they will. And it's not just political pressure. I really believe he has a concern for all employees. Yeah. So there's that interesting balance, you know, customer obsession fast. Is it too fast for employees? How do we balance that off? I think every company goes through those kinds of decisions. It's true. You know, I deal with Amazon. I have dealt with them uh, for from, you know, a long, long time ago. And I've actually known quite a few people that worked for Amazon in the merchandising side, you know, like uh-huh. the president of this, vice president of that. And at the buyer level, you know, the buyer, vice president, director yep. level, the turnover is pretty high. You know, they, they burn them out. I mean, literally, you can make a fortune, but they don't last more than three or four years. I mean, they right, will right. literally just, they're ready to just like, just, you know, get lost. So I think there's a lot of work to do on that end in terms of, you know, their employee relationships, not at just at the warehouse. I mean, if, if even these people that are telling you, you know, and they hire them well too. I mean, they hire people with a lot of experience and, but mm-hmm. they do burn them out. Yep. Like they burn them out at a faster rate than other corporate America, you know, pieces regarding the using the third party private label. I do think that's going on pretty actively. And I think that was partly, you know, responsible for their success because they were able to get pretty good reach. Even if they're not making it white label, they knew they were able to get like overall trends faster. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if you were, you know, selling shoes, Amazon would typically stock like the best sellers, like the black, the brown, and, you know, the right. and off-white. And a third party might have the blues and the grays and the pinks that the Amazon didn't want to carry. But then if they see a spike in the blue, then you'll know that even in branded pieces, they will start to stock that. So I think that that's, you know, it looks to me like it's happening. I'm not Uh in in there. In terms of what they can't do well, as far as delivering the customer service, I found that, you know, because Amazon is so algorithm, robots, you know, uh, sort of systems, computers driven, that things that have an emotional connection, like jewelry, for example, mm-hmm. they don't do that all that well. They don't. They can't sell the upper end pieces that you need a little bit of romancing because you can't only do like 150 words. You, you know, like you said, like writing those descriptions out isn't going to cause somebody to go, "I want my wedding ring to be this." So you know, right? right they're still losing out on that. And then, of course, you know, the thing that I wish that somebody would get get it done. You know quickly is groceries. I mean, I don't like shopping for groceries, but, (laughs) you know, it is something that they're not quite really, they don't have their, you know, gig down yet, but I'm sure, you know, they'll find it. So going back to your now, we're going to wrap up this whole session with the main takeaways that we've already covered the customer obsession and and the, the pros and the down. What are the, is there any one thing that you haven't covered yet that you might want to leave our audience with? 
Well, if I can do two, and I'll do first one really quick, which is generate high velocity decisions. Okay. One of the reasons as companies grow that they tend to slow is that their decision-making process gets more complicated. Bezos describes it as type one and type two decisions. Type one decisions are bet the farm, big decisions. And he says those should be made slowly with lots of data. He said, but most decisions at a company are not that kind. They're type two. They're easily reversible. And by adding bureaucracy, meaning I have to get this decision of the supervisor and then this decision for the manager and this decision for the regional VP, all that does is slow things down. And if you believe in encouraging failure, if somebody makes a bad decision, you're much better off changing that decision once you realize it than trying to prevent any failure at all. So I think that's, again, kind of back to what we talked about as companies grow, there are reasons why they slow down. And that that is one of them that I see a lot. And I think the final one is, and I mentioned this earlier, this idea of believe it's always day one. Continue to think like a startup. And I'll tell you this. So in an all-hands meeting, he was asked, he, Bezos, was asked the question, Jeff, what does day two look like, right? He always talks about day one. And he said, paraphrasing, he said, day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by painful, excruciating decline, followed by death. Yeah. That's- and then he goes on to say, What I'm really interested in is how do you fend off day two? How do you not go to day two? And he has four points there that he talks about. Again, this is in the letters. It's uh, 2016, I think. But he says it's customer obsession, right? We had talked about. It's high velocity decisions. It is eagerly embracing external trends. Kind of back to that comment I made about Blockbuster, yeah. right? Yeah. Eagerly embracing external trends, even when you don't know what that might mean. Right. I can't think of the fourth one off the top of my head now. But you know that to me, it encapsulates that mindset of thinking like a startup. It's always day one. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. I think that I have some friends who are in the restaurant business and in a very smaller scale, you know, why do restaurants fail? You know, if you, when the restaurants open the opening day, you know, they put on the, the best linens that, you know, clean the carpet, they do all this stuff. So think of every day as opening day. Yeah. Staff it the same way. And, you know, so he's got that very, you know, similar mindset. But listen, Steve couldn't think about the fourth one because I put him on the spot here. As you know, none of my interviews are scripted or interviewed ahead of time. So these things happen. But the good news is you could find him at thebezosletters.com for all things regarding Steve Anderson and his upcoming uh, project, as well as it was 21 letters and the book. The book is going to be a must read. If you're in small business, or even if you're not in small business, aren't you just curious about like how our lives actually have changed? I know I'm old enough to remember 1998, 1997. You order something from a, I mean, first of all, you couldn't order anything online. You had to call a 1-800 number. And when you finally get somebody at the other end, you know, about 30% of the time, they got your order wrong, the address wrong, the order wrong. And then, and then there's going to $30 charge for, you know, a gym outfit that actually cost me 29 bucks. So, you know, it wasn't even an option. 
So today, most of us, I mean, I've got my laundry detergent, everything coming on a schedule. So yeah. I don't even have to go to the stores for any of that stuff. My daughter is expecting a baby. She ordered almost everything, you know, from uh, post delivery. They actually sell a whole pack for a post delivery yeah. package yeah. <laughs> of all this stuff. And she's going to be able to have, you know, the heavy stuff like the laundry, the cleaning stuff, all of that stuff delivered. So she wouldn't have to actually leave, you know, with the baby. So, you know, are you not curious as to how our, all of our lives, I mean, not just here in America, but yeah. all over the world have been transformed in some way, you know, even if you're not a Jeff Bezos fan, you know, the other thing I'm going to tell you is even if you decided that you don't want to shop at Amazon anymore, okay? You know, some people say they're getting too big. I don't want to shop there anymore, okay? Even if you're that person, Jeff Bezos has set the standard for customer service that whoever you're shopping with now is still up the game, has still up the game. So the whole world has changed. Yep. So I'm not a, you know, his you know agent or anything like that, but I'm just curious as a, as a human being, how this all transpired and and who's going to be the next? Because, you know, if you're Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or any of these people and they started their company with 5,000 bucks or less, you got to be lying awake at night thinking there's going to be some new person who could do the same thing and make you irrelevant. And right, that right. new person might just be you. I mean, you know, get yourself educated. And, you know, I just love having you here today. And thank you so much for your time and good luck to you with all your endeavors. Well, Victoria, thank you. Great pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Remember, all of you listeners, please go ahead and subscribe and rate and review. And remember, stay healthy and happy until next time. And happiness is a choice. You've been listening to Million Dollar Hobbies, where we turn dreams into reality and passion into profit. According to ancient Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Congratulations on taking that first step today. For more information on how Victoria can help you turn your hobby into a million dollars and to download Victoria's free ebook on passion-based business ideas, visit milliondollarhobbies.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player.